You can be a strong Christian, you can be a conservative Christian, but Christian nationalism takes this to a different place that, that's extremely dangerous and, and we should be inoculated against it. I'm Mitch. And I'm Missy. We're co-workers. He's the boss and we're married. And she's the boss. Together we host Good Faith Weekly, a podcast on faith and culture. What could possibly go wrong? Tune in and find out. Missy. Welcome to Good Faith Weekly. On this episode, Missy and I are back from vacation. And later on the pod, we are going to sit down with the new president and CEO of Interfaith Alliance, Reverend Paul Rauschenbusch. It is a great conversation as we explore his vision as the newly elected CEO and president of Interfaith Alliance. So it's going to be a good pod. Stay tuned. Missy, we're back home. How are you? I'm very tired. How are you? You know, I'm a little sleepy myself. We've been busy. We have. We have been up to the New England area, enjoying the brisk temperatures up there. It was so nice. Yeah, we ended up in Maine at a family wedding and uh, then went down into Boston, spent a couple of days down there, got to see a Red Sox game, even though the Yankees beat them in the late And I want to, before we get into too many details, I feel like this is the, this is um, probably what the old version of Let's Look at Our Vacation slide is going to be in the podcast world. Yeah, if you would like to sit down, <laughs> so, grab your popcorn, ladies and gentlemen. That's right. I know everyone wants to hear our daily log from our vacation. So Day here one. we go. Now, before we start on that, I'm going to call you out on oh, something. Oh, okay. What did I do? It is baffling to me as a, really by nature, a rule follower, which may shock my parents, you know. Yes, yes. As a, you know, evidence to the contrary as a teenager, but but by nature I'm a, I'm a rule follower. I'm afraid to get in trouble, right? Right. How many people will not put their phones in airplane mode on the airplane? Yes. Is this even necessary anymore? And I ask this because <laughs> <laughs> Oh, lady, wait, wait a minute. The the FAA may be listening. <laughs> oh, oh. Well, I hope they are. We could use some more fans. Um, so I at the end of our flight coming home, I heard this woman's phone go off beside me. She just picks it up and starts texting like she's just on her phone. And right. so many times lately when we've been flying, people have been talking on their phone, openly texting on their phone. Um, and not on Southwest who allows that, like on other airlines sure. don't allow that. Right. And so I'm just kind of baffled by this. So yesterday when this happened, this woman just picks up her phone and just starts texting, like, what time are you going to be home with her husband or whatever? And yes, I was trying to read that because that's what I do. <laughs> um, I look over at you with my righteous indignation. <laughs> <laughs> and I see that your phone is not on airplane oh, mode. <laughs> so oh are you goodness. amongst the people who are ignoring this rule now? No, I, I usually hit uh, airplane mode just as we're about to take off. And then uh, I do turn it on probably a little prematurely before yeah. <laughs> the wheels hit the ground. I feel like uh, I'm a rebel in that I leave mine on regular, like 
right until we take off. And I feel like I'm really pushing the envelope. (laughs) You're such a rebel. (laughs) I don't know if anybody knows if this is necessary anymore because the flight attendants don't don't seem to care. Mm -hmm. No, but they do care if you have an iPad with a uh, a, uh, typing device on it. (laughs) A keyboard, I should guess. Those typing devices are not called keyboards, Keyboards, by the way. Typewriter, uh, but yeah, if you have a keyboard on it, they will tell you to put that away. But you can have your iPad out, but you just can't have it. Uh, so strange. So, anyways, I'm tattling on you to the um, Potiverse that you do not put your phone or keep your phone on airplane mode as instructed. Um, but well, I do. I turn it. I, I do turn airplane mode on. But then, yes, I turn it off maybe a little too soon. It's fine. It's fine. <laughs> moving on. Moving on. We have been up in New England, which was incredible. We had a family wedding, mm-hmm. and we decided to take a few extra days with um, some other family and just kind of, it's one of our favorite areas to go. Uh, the weather's beautiful, and um, we love it there. So it gave you a chance to kind of revel in um just that history, which yeah. you love, and share it with others. So that was a Plus lot of fun. Plus I got to eat some chatter and some lobster. We had our first whole lobster <laughs> yeah. at um, the wedding, which was interesting. What would you think? Oh, it was great. I mean, uh, the, the wedding was fantastic. It was a beautiful setting there in Kittery, Maine. I was asking about uh, the lobster. Well, I was getting to the lobster. The lobster was was excellent. Uh, you know, a lot of work uh, to, to get a little work, meat. But I was pleasantly to, surprised. It was but, yeah, very yeah, good. It was, it was, it was very, very good. Very good. So, yeah, yeah, I enjoyed so it. So it was uh, good. Um, I have to ask you a question. Yep. In terms of spiritual experiences, you have to tell me, was it? The harvest moonrise over the coast of Maine, or wait, let me rephrase that. Was it <laughs> your glass of something something with a cigar on the beach of Maine with the harvest moonrise, or Sox v Yankees at Fenway? This is a very difficult question because, you know, obviously the Harvest Moon was kind of a surprise for all of us uh, that it was going to uh, come out during our time up in New England. Um, You know, I've always looked forward to attending a Sox game uh, at Fenway. I mean, Fenway is just iconic, built in 1912. Uh, It's one of the old stadiums, oldest stadium in Major League Baseball. Um, and then the fact that they were playing the Yankees, the greatest rivalry in all of sports, uh, it was, that was a spiritual experience and it was a, a great, great time. I mean, you and our youngest son came down from college to attend with us. We had other family there. It was really a, just a, a great experience overall, but I am going to have to say, and this is kind of surprising to me, um, the moment that I got to walk out onto the beach there in York, Maine, and just bask in the glow of the harvest moon, listening to the waves uh, crash in from the Atlantic, may be one of the most spiritual moments I have encountered in a long time. I mean, it was just really amazing. And also less boring than baseball. Well, the, the the time it took the moon to come up into the sky was a lot less time than uh, nine innings of baseball. Cutery, as my aunt says, <laughs> board that we created on the beach in Maine was way better than the hot dog <laughs> at Fenway. Just saying. Yeah, very, very true. Very no, true. It so. was a great trip. You know what? You want to know what my the highlight of my time there was? Just being with me, of course. 
Yes, <laughs> sure. <laughs> was probably when my um, cousin's little guy, so I guess second cousin, what would he be? I don't know, Wyatt. He's four. Hey, guys. Hey, guys. He told his mom he wanted Missy to be his mom. <laughs> and no offense oh. to his mother, who is lovely. No, she is a wonderful human a being. A wonderful mother. But I'm. if I were a kid, I would want 47-year-old Missy to be my mom, too. <laughs> because she's a sucker. She's a lot of fun. But no, he was so sweet. And he, we were leaving that night after we saw him. We don't see him very often. And he just said, I had so much fun with you. Oh. And it just ugh, melt my heart. So um, all that to say, the scenery was beautiful. The history was beautiful. The trip was beautiful. But the most important thing was just the time we had with family. It was sure. just, it was so sweet. And um, lots I, of laughs. That's lots of laughs. And just uh, those memories are so important. Yeah. So. Yep. Well, it's uh, great to get away. Also great to be back home. Uh, and we got to sit down this week with the new president and CEO of Interfaith Alliance, uh, Reverend Paul Rauschenbusch. And uh, it's a great insight to his vision and the energy that he's going to be bringing to that organization. Our good friend, Rabbi by Jack Moline, of course, uh, retired uh, earlier this year, and Paul's going to be taking his spot now. But uh, yeah, it was a good, good interview. So the Rauschenbusch name is fairly significant. It um, is. I was not aware of this. Well, I mean, being married to you the last few years, I was aware of this, but most mm-hmm. people are not aware, may yeah. not be aware of this. So tell us about, um, we talk a little bit about his um, heritage and his family and why um, that this name is significant in our in our world and the, and the greater world beyond. So tell us a little bit about one of your heroes, Walter Rauschenbusch. Yeah, Walter Rauschenbusch for me uh, ranks up to with some of the greatest theologians that have influenced me throughout my readings. Uh, put him up there with Reynold Niebuhr, uh, with James Cone, Howard Thurman, uh, MLK, uh, and many others. But Rauschenbusch uh, was uh, a pastor in the late 19th century, early 20th century in New York City. He pastored in uh, Hell's Kitchen, which was one of the most difficult places in the country, if not the world, to uh, to do ministry in because of the poverty and everything associated with poverty in that area. But Rauschenbusch uh, really felt compelled and convicted to plant himself there at Second German Baptist Church, uh, located in Hell's Kitchen. And that's where he he just thrived uh, in that environment. And he saw things that broke his heart, that challenged him, that made him angry, I am, uh, I am assuming, and therefore began to write about his understanding of the gospel and how the gospel is more than individualistic. It is social, and many people consider Walter Rauschenbusch the father of the social gospel movement, particularly because of his ministry there in Hell's Kitchen and his ability to see how policy and economic uh, systems affect the whole within that, uh, that community. And so Rauschenbusch was was really before his time talking about systemic issues and how the gospel can redeem these systems and make certain that it provides hope and justice uh, for all of God's children, just not those who are privileged. And uh, he's just he's he is one of my heroes. 
So talk a little bit about him, the social gospel versus socialism. Yeah. You know, one of the things I think that uh, people get confused about when they hear people who are proponents of the social gospel, which I am one of those proponents, um, they get that confused with socialism. Is there elements to the social gospel that is a part of socialism? Yes. But socialism is a political philosophy while the social gospel is a theological construct in how to see the world and engage the world from a Christian perspective. Rauschenbusch, as I said earlier, lived in this community and saw the oppression of systems upon the people that he was living amongst. And therefore, as he read the gospel, as he developed his theology, he saw the gospel as revolutionary from a social construct that the gospel is about the good news is for everyone, not only for the individual, but for the whole. And therefore, the gospel can redeem these systems. These systems need to repent of the oppression and injustices that they inflict upon people. And as they do, these systems can be redeemed, and therefore justice can be implemented and infused within culture, therefore rising everybody up to give them equal opportunity uh, to thrive and to survive. And so Rauschenbusch saw this. Uh, he saw Jesus as this social revolutionary, not only a savior of the world, but uh, this uh, this justice advocate uh, for those who are on the who are marginalized and oppressed uh, within uh, his uh, his communities. And so Rauschenbusch mimicked this. And so, you know, I, I strongly believe in the social gospel. I believe that it should be paramount. Now, what happened historically is that while Rauschenbusch was promoting this social gospel and this redeeming of oppressive and uh, unjust systems, there was also another movement afoot, and that was evangelicalism. And we see that through Billy Sunday and the evangelical movement. And then uh, Billy Graham gets converted at a Billy Sunday uh, revival. And then, of course, Billy Graham blows up. There was a shift away from the gospel as a social uh, a social construct that could bring justice into the world, and that shift was more individualistic. And we see that paralleled with the American culture of becoming more individualized. That was about the individuals, about you know the old Protestant work ethic that really never existed, pulling yourself up by your bootstraps. Uh, it's that, your own salvation. Yeah, it's your own salvation in your own personal relationship with Jesus, there was not much emphasis placed upon the social uh, elements of the gospel or the social elements of faith. And so that became paramount within American Christianity, that it was all about the individual and the individual walk and the personal relationship and the social uh, the social importance was pushed aside until the rise of the religious right. And the religious right said not only is uh, individual salvation important, but now we must dominate culture with our rigid understanding 
of faith, and therefore they became a little bit more socially conscious, but in a negative way, trying to oppress their religious belief upon all of society. The social gospel does not do that. It just says, you know, uh, that there are unjust systems within our world, and they can be redeemed through repentance and reparative theology, and that we need to make certain that whether people are people of faith or people of no faith, that these systems can be redeemed in order uh, for justice to prevail for all people. And so, uh, and, and now we're seeing this tension really culminate in our, uh, our error, because we still have a very individualistic understanding of faith when it comes to American Christianity, but we're starting to see this movement uh, uh, really arise that is socially conscious. The Black Lives Matter movement, uh, you know, uh, sensible gun legislation, uh, the environment, uh, women's rights, women's rights, uh, same-sex marriage, that all of a sudden people are starting to say, wait, wait, wait a minute. Uh, to the religious right, you don't get to speak for me. I, too, am a person of faith, and I see these issues very differently. I don't see them as individualistic. I see them as a social construct, uh, and therefore there's individual freedoms that exist within the social construct, but there, ne- there needs to be justice for all and freedom for all. And to me, this is a really interesting time to live because we're seeing the tension of the social gospel and the individualistic gospel kind of con- uh, confronting one another at this point. So I'm going to bring it full, full circle and back down to a real inappropriate <laughs> level. Well, that is Had why little, we brought you on the show. <laughs> and that little, is also why you're still interim co-host. That's right. Had a little bit of a gospel, uh, social gospel moment <laughs> that just came to mind as you were talking the other night at the ball game. Oh, yeah. When I bought this hot dog. Right. <laughs> all they would sold was a foot-long hot dog. Yes, yes, yes. It was exactly as you imagined, pretty gross. <laughs> I took a couple of bites and tried because I was hungry. I was just like, no, I can't do it. I yeah. put it down. I wrapped it up, put it down. And my cousin turns to me. He's like, you got the hot dog left? I was like, yeah, I do. You want it? He said, yes. So he picked it up. He ate the hot dog. He was like, man, that's gross. He puts it down. This hot dog would not go away. <laughs> I, so I turned to you. I was like, it's like fishes and loaves. It just would not end. So you guys, if you're looking for any sort of um, um, analogy about fishes and loaves and the food multiplying, the footlong hot dog at Fenway Park, uh, it will not go away. It will it'll, not go it'll away. It'll feed the 5,000. Yeah, and, and, it, and trust me, I can testify, it will stay with you for quite a while after the ball game is <laughs> that's over. Right. That's right. Uh, well, we did sit down with Reverend Paul Rauschenbusch, the CEO and president of Interfaith Alliance, who has just been elected to this post, and uh, it was Don't a delightful you mean the conversation. Great grandson of Walter Rauschenbusch, as well as the great grandson, him appropriately, exactly Mitch. the great grandson of Walter Rauschenbusch, and uh, just a delightful person of faith and a champion for people's rights. And uh, looking forward to to his tenure at Interfaith Alliance, and so it was, it was a good conversation. I really enjoyed meeting him. I had not um, spoken with him before, but I've, of course, heard of his great-grandfather through you um, quite a bit. So it was a great conversation. So stay tuned. Uh, Missy and I are going to sit down with Reverend Paul Rauschenbusch. Hey, listeners. Check us out online at goodfaithmedia.org and follow us on social at gfmedia.org. We'd love for you to subscribe, rate, and review the podcast. I'm new here and could really use the feedback, but only if it's glowing. Thanks for listening.
Welcome back to Good Faith Weekly. On this episode, we've got a very special guest with us, Reverend Paul Rauschenbusch, an interfaith leader, journalist, and American Baptist minister, was recently named Interfaith Alliance's new president and CEO, replacing our good friend at Good Faith Media, Rabbi Jack Moline. A former associate dean of religious life at Princeton University, Rauschenbusch founded Huffington Post Religion Section in 2009 before serving as senior vice president of Auburn Seminary, and most recently a senior advisor for public affairs and innovation at Interfaith America. As president and CEO of Interfaith Alliance. He works with partners and affiliates across the nation to ensure that inclusive religious freedom is extended to people of all faiths and no faiths, and that democracy serves all and flourishes with contributions from people of all faiths, races, gender, sexuality, and background. Paul, congratulations on the new appointment and welcome to Good Faith Weekly. I am so excited to be with you both. Well, we are delighted that you're with us uh, here this week. Uh, again, excited about uh, this new appointment that you have. But before we get to uh, Interfaith Alliance and all the great uh, work that you're going about, you're about to engage in. Let's talk about your family legacy because you've got an incredible legacy. Obviously, the great grandson of Walter Rauschenbusch, but also you are related to the first Jewish Supreme Court Justice Louis Brandeis. So tell us a little bit about your legacy and what that means to you and how that is going to play how that has played into your career and your understanding of the world well you know when you have a wonderful great-grandparents like i do it, the trick is never to try to top them but try <laughs> to honor them and so that's what uh I try to do, I try to recognize their contributions. Um, I recognize that they were uh, men of their time and so that there's ways that I can continue to move that legacy forward in whatever ways I can. Uh, and um, to recognize that at my heart, I feel like I am an interfaith person. Like, I, you know, I say I have an interfaith heart in the sense that my language and my belief is of a Christian. My closest cousins are my Jewish cousins. And um, I grew up very close to my uh, Louis Brandeis uh, and Alice Goldmark had two daughters, one of whom was my grandmother. And my cousins were are the descendants of the other uh, daughter, Susan. And so um, we were very close and we, uh, we recognized how how much each of us have to offer uh, the family and the world. And there's nothing but admiration there. And so it was never a sense of a competition, but always a collaboration. And, and that's a model for me around um, interreligious uh, relations is that this is, this is mutually beneficial and beautiful. And there's lots of different ways to um, organize our faiths, but there's always a way to work across lines of difference and, that's a central tenant for the way I want to be working in my new position and the way our family has worked over the years. Well, Paul, let me echo Mitch's words and congratulate you on your new position. Um, you are tasked with filling some very big shoes. Uh, Rabbi Jack Moline is a board member of ours at Good Faith Media. We just adore him. He's been on a po on the pod before. Um, I want to know what while you're still in this honeymoon phase of a new job, <laughs> what are you most excited about um, in working at Interfaith Alliance? I am very excited about um, finding people, organizations, traditions to partner with. I think that um, I, I'm 
excited to have an excuse to go and talk to people of all different backgrounds and say, what's, what's pressing for you? How can we work together? And, and how can we uh, forge an alliance that will um, be beneficial to society? And so that's, you know, the, the, the exciting thing about this moment is I, there's a lot of sense of urgency around questions of democracy, around questions about how religion and freedom of conscience will function in society. And so people are open for big conversations, important conversations. And that's one of my favorite things to do is to, to look, you know, be on the lookout for possible partners in every corner of our country. And, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm just, I'm thrilled about it. One of the things about Interfaith Alliance that it was attracted me most to the position was our, our affiliates around the country. So we, we have affiliates in 21 states, uh, and we're looking to find even more people to partner with. Um, I was just in Texas, and there's an extraordinary number of, you know, wonderful religious people, but also wonderful interfaith groups in Texas, and uh, looking forward to building relationships uh, across the country and really finding a way to move our country forward in a way that, that benefits all of us. Well, Paul, that certainly sets the tone for your vision of Interfaith Alliance, and that is some exciting uh, comments to hear uh, from the new president and CEO of Interfaith Alliance. But with all this energy, with all this excitement surrounding your appointment, obviously there's a lot going on in the world and uh, a lot of fires that you're going to have to address uh, pretty quickly uh, just because of just because of world uh, circumstances. When asked about your new role at Interfaith Alliance, you told one news organization, and I apologize to our listeners for reading this quote, but it's such a good quote because I think it sets the tone for the issues that you're going to have to address as soon as your feet hit the ground. You said, America is at a crossroads. As the religious right works to tear down the boundary between religion and government, American democracy and the rights of individuals to control their own destiny are under attack. The rise of Christian nationalism, decisions handed down by a radical Supreme Court that demolished reproductive choice and church-state separation, the systemic restrictions of voting rights, and the reverberations of the January 6th insurrection are stark reminders of how essential interfaith alliance and its mission are to our current moment. So, Paul, let's start with Christian nationalism. How is Christian nationalism dangerous for both religion and democracy? Yeah, thank you for that question. I, I, I will uh, plug that we are having a major event on September 28th uh, on Christian nationalism is on the ballot, we're calling it. And uh, uh, Representative Jamie Raskin is joining us. Uh, Rep, uh, Reverend uh, Rich Sizek from Evangelicals for Democracy will be joining us. Um, a lot of a lot of people who feel very invested in this question, in part because we, we're coming out of religious traditions that feel that um, the the Christian nationalist movement, which insists that there is one way that religion should be in America, and that that way should be um, preeminent and inflicted on the rest of us, even other Christians. Uh, that should worry every religious person. 
It should worry Christians that there is one group that is trying to claim uh, a, a theology that trumps other Christian theologies, um, a moral outlook that trumps all other moral outlook outlooks. That's that's a problem for religious people because that's that that disrupts uh, the religious diversity that we have in this country and the promise of religious freedom that was at the core of the Constitution. And so um, this is a very, it's a dangerous thing for religious people. Christian nationalism is a dangerous thing for religious people, but it's also a, a dangerous thing for our, our, our nation. So I consider myself an extremely patriotic person. I come from a, a family that um, all of our, all of, you know, these, these ancestors that we referenced earlier, they were deeply patriotic people who believed in the America project that we, uh, as, as uh, Baldwin said, are, are still trying to achieve our country. And I feel Christian nationalism is a, is a danger to the idea of America that was at its founding and also that, um, that now feels like uh, at risk, which is religious diversity is a central strength and the freedom to be religious and also not to be religious is part of what it means to be American. And so I, I, I feel very strongly that we need to take back the term of we need to this is not a this is not a patriotic movement and it is not a religious movement. Mm. It is it is an antithesis of both. Mm-hmm. And religious people as well as non-religious people and patriotic people of all stripes should be um, should recognize it and speak up against it because it's it's dangerous for our country and for our faith. Paul, and uh, we're going to, Mrs. has got some questions regarded to some of the specifics uh, uh, of what the Supreme Court has recently issued as well as what's going on in the culture. But just kind of follow up on this Christian nationalism, uh, and, and I, I'm hesitant to call it theology because I think it's heretical, uh, but this ideology of Christian nationalism. Uh, this latest alliteration of Christian nationalism, because like you said, it's been around for a long time. Thank goodness the founders avoided that uh, with the First Amendment. But do you, I mean, I don't think people understand how dangerous this this heretical theology is because it really is at the core of a lot of the decisions that we are seeing handed down by the Supreme Court, a lot of the policies that are being promoted by the religious right within a certain party. I can remember being uh, really blown away about how the eschatology, the understanding of last things, really shapes the foreign policy of not only <laughs> religious people, but also of politicians who listen to them. I mean, it, this really is frightening because we are seeing right now in this moment uh, this this theology or this heretical theology come to life in the policies that affect all of us. Yeah. I, I mean, you've said it perfectly, and uh, it has implications for um, the way we understand the environment, uh, the way we understand our uh, the you know geopolitics, um, who we are, um, h- how we you know decide alliances, uh, and and so I, I just think it's uh, I. I want to. I want us to lift it up in order to really make sure that we that that 
people listening who are faithful, who are going to church, who believe in Jesus and who are Christians and, um, and, and feel strongly about their faith, that they recognize that, th- that this is, this is not the logical extension of their faith. Mm. I think that's really important to like this. You can be a strong Christian. You can be a conservative Christian, uh, but Christian nationalism takes the, the Christian uh, faith to a place where it, it, I agree, it kind of, um, it perverts the faith itself Mm -hmm. and, and blends it with a nationalistic uh, um, uh, impulse that, that is really not, you can really can find nowhere in Jesus's teachings. Uh, and so I just think it's, you know, my, my hope with lifting this up, you know, particularly with, with you all is, is to say, you can be a strong Christian, you can be a conservative Christian, but Christian nationalism takes this to a different place. And it, and it is a political ideology that is subverting the faith in service of a political ideology. And I think that's very, that that's extremely dangerous and, and we should be inoculated against it so that we like, you know, kind of bat this back down. Amen. Paul, in the next part of your quote that Mitch read earlier, you mentioned the Supreme Court. Um, can you tell us what concerns you most about the Supreme Court? And tell us, what can we do about it? Well, you know, there's a couple a couple of the decisions that I thought were problematic was, you know, one of them was uh, the Kennedy decision, which uh, ruled in favor of the coach being able to pray at school. Now, one of the things I think is important to state is that I believe people can be religious wherever they are. And I'm not trying to, you know, erase people's faith. And you can you can take that into the the board, the corporate room. I don't all good, but the problem with this case was is that it is clear that he was, you know, basically, you know, if you're a football coach, I was an athlete, and like the coach, the coach has a lot of power. And if you're praying with your with your athletes. And you're basically saying, this is, we're going to pray now and I'm going to show you how to pray and we're going to do this. And if, you know, you don't have to come, maybe he said that, maybe he didn't, but, 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 you know, if you don't show up with the team, you're not really part of the team. So it felt like coercion. It felt like it moved from my faith to I'm going to coerce others who may not hold my faith to, to having my faith. That feels to me very, very dangerous. And I'm, baffled, I have to say, by religious people who are applauding this. Because as um, as a parent and as a pastor, I would hate to outsource the teaching of my family and my congregation to some random coach who I have no idea what he thinks. I don't know. Have you, know? you ever been taught by a coach before? I, th- I hear they're pretty good. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, I mean, I, I, I just think it's like, I, I thought it, was, it just seems so so strange that people who care so much about faith would like just say, okay, you know, you you, you do that for me. Uh, you know, and uh, so I think it's a, that, that that seems to me to be a problem. I, I, uh, I feel like there are, people who for very good reason do not want to have an abortion uh, and, uh, and and will go to great lengths not to. I think uh, recognizing that within uh, religious traditions, there are varying opinions about um, what abortion is, what, um, you know, when life begins, 
how how to negotiate uh, a pregnancy and ending a pregnancy. That is a, that is religious traditions differ on this, and to create a uniform way that all people of all faiths have to abide by, which privileges one point of view on what abortion is, and 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 you know. It feels to me like a, you know an abrogation of religious freedom. So I that again, I'm not trying to make anybody feel like they should have an abortion or even support abortion. Um, but but to to mandate a religious point of view, which is what I feel that the Supreme Court did, feels to me to be un-American and dangerous. And so those are, you know, those are the ways that I feel like there was overreach. What I think we can do is to begin to talk about it in our own communities. And what is our commitment to religious freedom in our own community? I think it's very easy to nationalize everything and forget that people are living right next to you who may be under, you know, under enormous duress because of some of these decisions and figure out what is our, what is the way that we can be supportive of one another in local communities um, as well as, uh, you know, I think, I think voting is really important. And so, you know, voting your freedom, this, uh, this election uh, season feels really important. So, so I'll, I'll, you know, I, I want part of what I'm really hoping to do uh, with the Christian nationalism and some of these other issues is to give people the tools they need to feel less powerless. Mm. More powerful would be a quicker way to say that, Missy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, like less less power. powerless. Less power. Uh, but, but more powerful and, yeah. and able, to, um, able to, to be agents uh, in their own communities. And Paul, I'm really glad you mentioned just the the strategy of engaging in conversations with uh, people who are local and meeting these individuals who may disagree with you on these certain issues, but meeting them where they're where they are and having a conversation about it. And and what I am seeing today, I have never seen. Uh, Christians uh, who oppose Christian nationalism or oppose the latest Supreme Court decision verse, uh, on reproductive rights of women be vocal, uh, as vocal as they are today. I mean, uh, at Good Faith Media, we ran a three-part series this week by a scientist talking about uh, the biblical understanding of abortion and how you know uh, there is a big a biblical argument for abortion in the Bible as well as reproductive rights. Uh, we had Rachel Ain on the show who delivered a wonderful uh, sermon at her synagogue in, in Brooklyn on the subject. Uh, there seems to be more conversation taking place now than ever before that people who really support separation of church and state, support religious liberty in its traditional sense, and believe in science and where we are as a society are speaking up more now than ever before. And that's really, I think, a really a good thing that we're seeing. It's very hopeful. Yeah. And, I, you know, I think it's, I, I think that people of all faith traditions are recognizing that we're not going to let other people speak for religion. Mm. You know, I think that there, there, there has been over the last few decades, and, and part of the reason Interfaith Alliance was started was to offer a, another religious voice at the table mm-hmm. and to insist that 
you know, that, that the religious right is not speaking for all of us. In fact, if you look at the polling from, you know, Public Religion Research Institute, um, the majority of all faith traditions, except for white evangelicals, support same-sex marriage. Mm-hmm. The majority of all faith traditions support uh, ab- some kind of abortion rights or protection for abortion rights. So, so it's absolutely a minority religious opinion. Right. And yet it's masquerading as the religious opinion. And I think that's what's, that's the reason it's so, you're, you're finding people a little bit coming out of the closet and either they're doing it vocally or they're doing it the ballot box. What happened in Kansas yeah, right, was, yeah. was, was astounding. And so, so I think, you know, I think it's really that, that that's part of the opportunity here mm-hmm. is that we, we can begin to recognize the diversity of religious opinions and recognize that no one can tell the rest of us what to do. Yeah. Um, so I, I think that that's, that's what I'm feeling very hopeful about. It. I'm very hopeful about um, good faith media and organizations like yours who are, you know, offering this kind of uh, forum. Mm-hmm. I think the more forums like this that we offer, the be- the more people will be accustomed to hear these voices. And that's that feels really important. We kind of abdicated media mm-hmm. uh, because, you know, it, it's very hard to find uh, to, to find um, a moderate uh, or certainly not progressive Christian voice on, on the radio anymore. Right, uh, right. And I feel like that was a mistake. We should be sure. offering the deep spiritual and also um, liberating uh, uh, message of um, more moderate uh, and, uh, and more progressive religious voices. So I think the more we can um, get out there mm-hmm. and the more we can use uh, the technology, digital technologies and others to, to get the good, the good word out there, the more people will feel less alone. Mm-hmm. Yeah. There you and, go. And recognize that they're not crazy right. <laughs> for having these thoughts and yeah. that actually they're part of a, a, a very broad community and, and broad consensus that has been unrecognized. And that's one of the things that we continue to hear across the country is that, wow, I did not know that there are people of faith that thought like you thought that you think like I do. And they didn't under, they didn't realize there is a larger community out there. And so they get connected into this community and network. And it's really exciting to see. So, well, something else is coming down the, the pike here pretty soon, uh, Paul, and that's the midterm elections uh, just mere months away. And, you know, I think about uh the legacy of John Lewis during moments like this, uh, when we're talking about voting and voting rights, uh, re- former Representative Lewis, uh, former Baptist minister said, you know, that voting rights, or the, the, the right to vote, he called it almost sacred. I think if he could revise that statement, he might even call it sacred these days. But voting rights are under attack these days. Uh, you mentioned that this is part of your vision for Interfaith Alliance. How is Interfaith Alliance going to uh, stand up for voting rights, especially those individuals who find themselves marginalized uh, and being pushed out of the voters' box? And how can we get them back in and make voting uh, easier? I've never understood why we're making it more difficult to vote. But uh, uh, so, so what? Are, what's Interfaith Voting Alliance? What's your vision for this? This is uh, voting rights is part of our broader democracy work. Um, recognizing that actually voting um, and being part of creating the world and cre- creating the government and the world that we want to live in 
is part of a religious mandate. Mm. And when that ability to do that is restricted, that is, uh, it's a religious freedom issue and it's also a uh, democracy issue. Um, I think <clears throat> part of, you know, it, it, for, for me, the um, Interfaith Alliance is really, is really looking to see how we can uh, be helpful uh, on the Hill and in other places to recognize that this is a religious issue, mm-hmm. that voting rights is a religious issue. Um, because often the groups that are, you know, targeted, they, it can be the black church, it can be um, uh, immigrant communities. Uh, it can there there are there are communities that are um, are are deeply uh, faithful whose uh, ability to to mobilize their constituencies and be part of the democratic pro- process are being intentionally targeted, and that is a religious freedom issue. And so we're we're looking at ways that we can you know. At, you know, speak up on it like like I am right now, but and also see if there are ways that we can um, frame this as as Representative Lewis did, as you know, part of the sacred mandate of religious communities. And when it's restricted, it's actually uh, uh, comes into the freedom of religious expression and freedom of religious action that that is protected. And and so, are there ways that we can? Um, uh, help help uh, americans see what h- how serious this is um and and help us all kind of come together and recognize that every person has the right to express themselves at the ballot box mm. just as they express themselves in their house of worship and that's part of our 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 uh, what we're going to be um, arguing. And in the short term, um, we're really going to be focusing on Christian nationalism yeah. uh, this uh, in this election, because there are um, Christian nationalists, like self-affirmed, uh, self-proclaimed <laughs> right, yeah. um, Christian nationalists who are in major races around the country, as well as in smaller ones, and to be able to help um, voters understand like how dangerous this is for the majority of Americans, and uh, and so that's going to be our um, our focus until November. It is uh, it's going to be a major focus, and then we're going to be continuing our work in, in democracy sure. uh, uh, preservation and and expansion into the into the coming years. And remind our reader or remind our listeners, Paul, when is that forum that Interfaith Alliance is hosting? September twenty eighth. We're going to be having a um, a forum on Christian. It's called Christian Nationalism is on the ballot in. Uh, 2022, and this is going to be hosted uh, on the Hill. Uh, it's 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 being framed as a briefing, so everyone who co- attends, whether uh, in person uh, or for for I, I think your listening audience, it will be mostly um, being able to tune in on Zoom. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, everyone will be able to receive uh, a briefing afterwards and also a like a kind of how-to kit recognizing christian nationalism in your community and your candidates and and what that means for for your your community and and some of the ways you can counteract that argument 
And if you want to find out more about this forum as, as well as sign up for the, uh, the forum itself, you can go to interfaithalliance.org and uh, find out more information about it. Well, Paul, it has been a delight visiting with you today. We are so thankful that uh, for your vision uh, for Interfaith Alliance. So we're excited to work alongside Interfaith Alliance as you begin your tenure there. Uh, one of our goals here is to amplify alternative voices uh, in the public square uh, that speak out against Christian nationalism and for an alternative way of looking uh, at issues through an inclusive Christian lens. So we look forward to working alongside you. Paul, as you know, our tagline at Good Faith Media is there's more to tell. In light of our discussion today and your new position, what is your more to tell? I think my more to tell is that this work is often very taxing and arduous and and frankly tiring and i want to just encourage you know myself my team anyone who's listening to recognize that self care is important mm taking care of yourself. And for some of us, that means like remembering to pray, remembering to um, be with people who we love and sustain our spirits, remembering that joy is super important and dancing in your kitchen is a really good thing to do if you feel like it. But to recognize that, that we can't just... You know, I can't remember who said it. Someone really famous. And I'm going to get in a lot of trouble that I can't remember who said it. But like, if, if, if I can't dance, I don't want to join your re- revolution. I just remember that we can't let this be the thing that sucks all the fun out of our lives. And I'm really serious about this work and I want to be in it. But I want to be in it with people who are also finding joy, finding laughter, humor, uh, and, and ways to, you know, create a little bit of the, the, the kingdom of God here on earth, uh, as we, as we go, as we, as we march forward along this path. So, so just remember, remember the joy, remember the, the, the caring for the spirit, uh, and, uh, and remember, uh, that at, at its foundation, um, you know, it's, it's about love. And if we can create a, a world and a, a society based on love, then then that's that's ultimately the mission of, in my mind. Well said, sir. Reverend Paul Rauschenbusch, president, new president and CEO of Interfaith Alliance. You can find out more about uh, the Interfaith Alliance at interfaithalliance.org. My dear friend, it has been a joy. Thank you so much for joining us uh, today. And uh, you're welcome back anytime, Paul. Well, I look forward to being with you, uh, both of you. It's just been such a pleasure, and, uh, and I feel like we're just at the beginning. You've been listening to Good Faith Weekly, hosted by Mitch and Missy Randall. This weekly podcast from Good Faith Media discusses matters of faith and culture. Subscribe wherever you get your podcast and give us a like and a glowing review. We produce the podcast out of Norman, Oklahoma. Our music comes from Pond 5. And we're supported by listeners like you. Learn more about us at goodfaithmedia.org. <laughs>